Hi folks, you're listening to White Atlantic Weird, the Irish Fortean show that's critical but not cynical. I'm Kian, and I'm here at the Cabin in the Woods as usual, ready for an episode with Dr. Francis Young all about pagan survivals, amongst other things. A rather favourite topic of the show has come up several times and has links to episodes we've done recently, as I think you'll hear in the interview. Now, I'm not feeling 100%. I've got bit of a case of the sniffles so I'll make this relatively brief. Um, My beer for this episode is not a beer at all it is uh, a glass of warm lemony stuff that hopefully will ward off um, this cold from getting any worse. Um, I will briefly talk about books that I'm reading before we get into the main interview so I've been reading um, I've been rereading Empireland by Sathnam Sangira, which is all about uh, Britain and the British Empire and the effect that having an empire might have had on Britain itself. And uh, rereading this one, it's a kind of a, I think 2021, there's a lot of stuff about COVID in it. It's very much a COVID era book, uh, but I'm going through a bit of a, you know, periodic obsession with the British Empire, which is the kind of thing that strikes me at least once or twice a year, and I have to dig out some some books. So this one is good. It um, is from the point of view of a non-historian, uh, talking about exactly why it's possible to grow up in Britain even today without learning much about this uh, thing, which was the most important thing that ever happened to Britain, and one of the most important things that ever happened in the world, and yet um, folks don't always know a whole lot about it. So I find that interesting. I'm also just finishing up a collection of short stories by Henry S. Whitehead called Tales of the Jumbie. Now, Whitehead was a, a weird tales kind of guy. You're talking pulp, uh, pulp horror and fiction from the 1920s and 30s. This guy lived in the West Indies, um, in the U.S. Virgin Islands, and writes a lot of his, you know, ghost stories about that sort of territory. And, you know, this comes with the usual caveats of reading fiction from that time, especially one that has to do with, like, voodoo and, um, you know, issues of race and religions that are not your own. Uh, so, you know, the usual <laughs> usual caveats apply. But I did enjoy this, and um, I won't say... Uh, that Whitehead is is progressive with this stuff, but he's he did live there and he does know the cultures that he's talking about, so it's better than some um, interpretations of, of of like voodoo and that sort of material. Uh, what's very interesting to me is that a lot of these stories are written in the mid twenties before the publication of uh, William Seabrook's The Magic Island, which is probably the most influential version of this material that was that was known at the time to you know outside of the area anyway certainly to americans and europeans and he actually name checks seabrook's book a couple of times in his short stories and pointing out that he got there first and that none of the material in seabrook's better known book was new to him at least so uh, yeah some interesting stuff there it's a bit of a mixed bag but tales of the jumbie um early early stuff you know, from a European perspective or an American perspective, dealing with, you know, voodoo and zombies and that sort of lore. So I'm enjoying that one too. All right, uh, you can always reach out over at uh, well, buy me a coffee is a good is a good shout. That's uh, buymeacoffee.com forward slash White Atlantic, uh, and you can say hello over at Mastodon where we are at White Atlantic Weird at Mastodon or on Twitter where you can see kind of 
like places I've been, uh, trips I'm taking, stuff like that, a lot of like landscape photography, nature photography. And over there we are wide underscore Atlantic underscore weird. But uh, for now, I'm going to hook you up with my conversation with Dr. Francis Young. This is primarily about the, the concept of pagan survivals. We talk about these ideas in the Victorian and Edwardian societies and towards the end we get into other elements of the paranormal and connections or lack of connections perhaps to alien abducting greys and all of that good stuff so hopefully you enjoy it we are certain that satanism exists it's the practice of evil and following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. I'm Francis Young. I am an academic. I, I work on the history of religion and belief is how I'd describe it. Um, so I, I work on some quite traditional kind of history of religion, church history type topics, like the history of monasticism, cult of saints and medieval period and things like that. But I also have an interest in slightly more far out things. Um, I'm interested in, well, you know, one of the taglines of of wide Atlantic weird, you know, what, why people believe strange things, really. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm interested in supernatural belief. I've written about 20 books uh, looking at various different aspects of, of religion and belief. Uh, I teach for University of Oxford's Institute for Continuing Education. And um, yeah, I, 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 I'm quite prolific on Twitter, uh, if anybody wants to, to find me there. Um, but um, yeah, I, I, I kind of do my own thing, really, and, and range across uh, looking at uh, England, Ireland, the Baltic states. Uh, so yeah, those are a few, a few of the things that, that I do. Great. And so I'm, I'm intrigued to um, get on to cover some topics in this episode. I'm, I'm going to ask you, be asking you about the concept of pagan survivals. Um, we're going to be talking a bit about your, your recent writing on fairies and um, British gods. And um, we might even get a little bit into UFO culture as well. Those are definitely some things I'd, I'd like to cover. So perhaps we could start off with the, the pagan survival stuff. Um, I'm utterly fascinated by this. I, I, I have been for a long time. Um, I think because I was one of those naive people who took some of this at face value because, you know, long ago, because it was just so much of it floating around the kind of part of the part of the furniture, really. And I was a little bit shocked the first time I heard it questioned. And I, I was just kind of horrified then that there's just so much stuff out there that people take uh, as being real. And it's it's not really considered serious by by historians, by academics, and and then secondarily, I became interested. Well, where where does this come from? Why do why do people believe this particular weird thing? So, I don't know if you have a, a take or a background um, to um, what what do we mean when we say the myth of pagan survivals? Yeah, I, I'm absolutely fascinated by this myth. Um, you know, more, more almost by the myth of of pagan survival and the persistence of people's desire to believe it than I am by the pagan survivals themselves, which you know, there is, there is a case to be made that in some isolated cases, perhaps something has been transmitted from the from pre-Christian religion that has persisted in more or less its original form. Uh, but in in the vast majority of cases, it's possible to find alternative explanations. 
And I think the thing about the pagan survival myth is that if you apply Occam's razor to it, if you, you know, seek the, the simplest explanation that in, it requires the invocation of the least bizarre, uh, you know, series of, uh, of events and circumstances in order to explain features of popular religion and things like that and, and popular Christianity, you're, you're probably not, if you apply Occam's razor, going to alight on the possibility that paganism in some way survived. But I think that it's a sliding scale. So at one end of the spectrum, the, the kind of most extreme version of the pagan survival hypothesis, if you like, is something like Margaret Murray. Uh, so somebody saying, oh, you know, all this stuff, anything weird that we can find in the historical record for the medieval period, the early modern period, anything weird that people were doing in the British Isles or Western Europe or whatever, um, must be pagan. Uh, and not only must it be pagan, but it is the result of a secret pagan cult continuing in parallel with and alongside or underneath um, the, the official Christianity, uh, and that that official Christianity was only followed by the elites, and it was just a kind of a, a rebadging of society, and underneath, you know, most ordinary people were pagan peasants, you know, creeping off into the forest to worship the green man, <laughs> and so forth. <laughs> um, now, you know, from, from a modern historical point of view, that that's that's obviously ludicrous, you know, I, I, there's no serious historian who would believe that. It sometimes crops up in fiction still. You'll, you'll still find that in world building, um, in, in sort of low fantasy and that kind of thing. Um, but, but there is a sliding scale. And, and I think you'll find other people who, they don't seriously believe in the witch cult perhaps, but they do broadly accept this idea that you know, paganism continued under the surface and that popular Christianity was essentially pagan. It was just kind of, you know, one classic example of this would be the claim that uh, Christian saints are in some cases mere replacements for pagan gods, that, that they, they just took over straight away from these pagan gods. And therefore, if you uncover their true identities, they essentially are those pagan deities. And, and that, I think, is a much more widely spread view. Uh, so that kind of moderate version of the pagan survival hypothesis. You know, well, one um, very prominent example in Ireland, for example, is the, the belief that St. Bridget is one and the same with, a, with a, 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 an Iron Age goddess uh, of, the, of the same name. Uh, but then I think, yeah, you've also got those who are, who are sceptical of this, and I number myself among them. And I think, yeah, the historical consensus has broadly come to the conclusion that in most cases, pagan survivals aren't real, or, or at least we need to reinterpret what we mean by pagan survival, or perhaps use slightly different terminology. So the terminology that I prefer, some people describe me as a, as a, a, a persistentist rather than a survivalist. So in other words, I, I'm interested in the, the way in which paganism or the idea of paganism or the idea of the pagan persists into the Christian period and post-conversion to Christianity. Um, but I don't give very much credence to survival. Now, by survival, I suppose what I mean is that more kind of full-blooded claim that whole elements of pagan religiosity survive into the Christian era. And I, I don't find that credible. And, and the main reason I don't find it credible is it, it, the, the lack of evidence is one reason. But the other reason is simply the 
the structure of pre-Christian pagan belief, uh, or rather pre-Christian pagan cult, it might be more uh, accurate to say, because cult doesn't necessarily have much of a belief element in quite the same way as Christianity. So, you know, uh, scholars of, of Christianity often talk about the monotheistic faiths, so, you know, Judaism, Christianity, Islam as being confessional faiths. In other words, they are based on creeds, they're based on sacred scriptures, they require you to make some kind of act of personal or possibly collective, but some kind of conscious act of affirmation that you accept certain doctrinal truths to, to be the truth. But paganism doesn't do that. And of course, you know, I use this word paganism really as a placeholder for a multiplicity of different religions that existed in the pre-Christian world. You know, there, there is no such thing as paganism in, if you're talking about a single monolithic ism. But in paganism, what matters is practice. So you keep up the rights of the ancestors, you maintain the sacrifices, you ensure that the gods are placated. Um, and yeah, these the, the sort of more metaphysical, more, more kind of supernaturalist conceptions of belief perhaps don't obtain. So as soon as monotheism gets its claws into a culture, as soon as monotheism has kind of established itself as a possible way of thinking, it's pretty difficult for paganism to cling on. And one reason for that is that it's a total kind of paradigm shift in the way that you think about religion itself. And so I just don't find it very plausible that, that you can get paganism and, and Christianity coexisting for very long uh, uh, alongside each other. And in fact, the evidence points to there's about a sort of, you know, one generation window in most cases when a conversion event happened in the early Middle Ages uh, and going into, you know, going, going into later in the Middle Ages as well. But, you know, it's about 40 years, which, of course, 40 years would be the normal length of a generation in that period because people didn't have very high life expectancies. For about 40 years, you get this kind of coexistence of of paganism and Christianity and these interesting kind of syncretic events going on. But then after that first generation, Christianity has then got its claws into the culture and, and therefore it's kind of quite difficult to go back. It's almost a kind of an arrow of time situation that Christianity is, yeah, once it's established, generally speaking, there are exceptions to this, but generally speaking, it tends to, you know, be a one way direction of travel that Christianity is successful and paganism declined. And one reason for that is that paganism is not proselytizing. These pagan faiths had no interest in making converts. Christianity does. And therefore Christianity or you know, any other um, proselytizing monotheistic religion, not just Christianity, these are, you know, if you think about it in ecological terms, these are kind of aggressive predators. <laughs> they, they are interested in making converts. They're, they're not just you know, um, you know, accepting the status quo. I think I think you've helped me a lot there with that <laughs> as a non-religious person, but as, as an ecologist. Yeah, that that helps me to conceptualize it a bit. Um, I, I read I read a lot of Victorian era stuff, both both fiction and, um, you know, uh, folklore studies and stuff from that time. And uh, like they, they frequently have this idea, they, this presumption that because they are living in a very Christian society, um, they think that Christianity has this like obvious um, supremacy over over previous forms of belief. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, I would struggle with that personally, but they, they take it as a fait accompli that, oh, well, of course, once Christianity shows up um, it triumphs. And to them, that's because it is superior, whereas I mean, I suppose from a slightly more academic or a slightly more distant point of view, I think it's 
it's it's more acceptable to me anyway to acknowledge well it is more it is more complex it is more structured and as you say it does require it requires you to declare yourself to be a christian in the way that it's not on you to declare yourself to be a pagan or or that sort of thing i suppose it lacks the the structures it lacks the ceremony perhaps yeah indeed and and i think that you know once a yeah once a pagan society has been touched by this kind of proselytizing monotheisms then it, it it becomes quite difficult to to turn back because one of the features of of most european paganisms they are about duty they're about ancestor worship they're about maintaining custom and if that thread is broken it's very difficult to go back so take for example uh Samogitia, uh which is the the western region of lithuania which is perhaps not a very well-known region but but it's very important for this history because it's actually the last european region yes with the exception of northern scandinavia and the sami people um Samogitia is the last european region that, that officially converts to christianity and there you have the extinguishing of sacred fires which were perpetual fires that have to be kept burning now as soon as those fires are extinguished it's difficult to relight them because you you have you have to ask yourself as a pagan why have the gods allowed their sacred fires to be extinguished and similarly you know you've got sacred groves you know sacred forests the missionaries would, would deliberately cut down these sacred groves and sacred forests in order to show that the god of the christians is more powerful than the god of the pagans and you've got these records of pagans kind of converting to Christianity or, or rather kind of accepting Christianity as a fait accompli, even if they don't truly understand it, because they say, well, you know, our gods must be permitting this to happen. Our gods have deserted us and things like that. Now, we have to be quite careful of that because, of course, these accounts in all cases, in fact, are written down by the Christians. We never have an account in their own words of what a pagan actually thought. We've just got a few accounts of Christians where they report what the, pag what the pagans said and what the pagans thought. Uh, but it does seem that, yeah, it, it, it's, it's quite, quite hard when these two ways of thinking about religion come into contact with each other. It's quite hard for them to meet as equals. Now, that is not to say that, you know, that Christianity was in any way superior to, to paganism. I'm certainly not saying that. That's, you know, that would be a, a, a faith claim, not a historical claim. Time. But I think that there are these kind of structural issues of the way the belief is, 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 is constructed and the way the missionaries played it was also very clever. So the missionaries would essentially work on people's higher level concepts of um, kind of existential questions of where the world comes from, uh, who, who was the creator. Now, now, the, these are questions which, you know, pagan religions were often quite vague about, you know, the, the, the idea of creation, or indeed they didn't even have the concept of creation because perhaps there was a more kind of um, eternalist conception of the world or, or a, a conception of the world that was based on reincarnation. But they would sort of get to people's uh, higher level concepts of, of, of the cosmos by asking questions about, you know, who made the world, where did everything come from? And then once the idea that the supreme god is the god of the christians everything else filters down from there but the, the a, a point that i've made numerous times in my writing is that the thing about christianization it, it doesn't need to be totalizing to begin with a society only needs to be as christianized as it needs to be for the political purposes that someone needs to accomplish 
Uh, and so, in other words, you get these kind of top-down conversions. The king becomes a Christian. It's a classic pattern. The nobles accept baptism. And then the people, you know, over a period of time are essentially kind of um, encouraged or in some cases forced to, to, to be baptized, whether they understand the Christian faith or not. And then once you've got people baptized, of course, then they're under the law of the church. Then they are deemed Christians, whether they understand the faith or not. And you've essentially kind of already undermined paganism because you've cut people off from an essential part of their ancestral tradition uh, by giving them this new religious identity. And so, yeah, I, I, I would say that, yeah, that, that there, there is this, yeah, there is this kind of trajectory which is quite hard to reverse. But having said that, there are examples of the trajectory reversing. So Christianity, when it arrives in England um, in 597, it's touch and go in the early years of the seventh century, where whether Augustine's mission to the Anglo-Saxons is actually going to work, uh, because you've got so many different kingdoms with various different members of the royal families overthrowing one another. And there is one point where a few kingdoms have been converted, but then they revert because somebody else comes to the throne and isn't interested in Christianity. And you only have, you know, Kent and, and East Anglia at one point still holding on to Christianity. And, you know, likewise in Eastern Europe, you've got the situation with the West Slavs. So the Poles are very, very enthusiastic early adopters of, of Christianity. But other West Slavic people like the Palabians, they kind of um and are about, you know, they kind of start to think about Christianity, but then they decide, no, actually, we're absolutely not going to become Christian. And they rebel and they, they, they reject totally the idea of Christianity when they realize that part of the package is a load of Germans turning up and colonizing their lands. Uh, and so I think when, when you've got conversion coupled with colonialism, then you've got a problem because you've got this political factor, which means that people are going to resist your colonizing, but they're also going to resist your colonizing by rejecting the religion that you're bringing with you. Now, I have a couple of examples, like specific examples of um, things that are often told and things I would have heard growing up um, about the the presence of paganism in the landscape. So places where you can still see what people popularly presume to be um, kind of pagan survivals. And, and one of these is the uh, placement of churches and the the yew trees and the graveyards and all of this and so being a an, ex an extraordinarily long-lived tree you, it, it's often said and and i would have been told this over the years that um well the, they mark a place that had been sacred for a very long time and in some cases before prior to the advent of christianity the idea being that the christianity came and overlaid a layer on top of an area that was already already um, significant and um, sometimes people will say that the yew trees will, will signify this. I do have um, a friend who is um, a medieval a medievalist who did point me in the direction at one time of um, something that did come from a pope in medieval times, like explicitly um, ask, or requesting that uh, you know, it's, it's the same areas be used so that they be the local people would be comfortable with them. And again, that's part of the idea that you always hear told. So I, I appreciate your thoughts on that one. This, the second thing being, of course, and I, I can't wait to get into this, but the green man itself, that is the the, the symbol yeah. of the, the man's face with the, the vegetation sprouting from the mouth and from the nose. And again, it's it's you do see it in churches around here sometimes. It was on the quadrangle of my university in college from the, in the 1840s. Victorian building. So 
Um, and again, people will nearly always tell you that, oh, that's a, a leftover pagan thing that, yeah. you know, the church utilized in order to make people comfortable with this new with this new system. So I wonder if you could um, add a bit to those. Yeah, well, the letter that you're referring to uh, from a pope, this is uh, Gregory the Great's letter to St. Melitus. Um, Melitus was a bishop who was one of Augustine's team, if you like, in the, in the early 7th century. Uh, so the early Anglo-Saxon mission to England. And the letter essentially says, don't destroy the temples of the pagans, uh, repurpose them as churches. And that for for centuries, really, in the kind of the, the historiography of, of the conversion of England, has been cited as evidence that, you know, churches must have been put on, on pagan sites. But the most recent thinking about this letter has pointed out that, well, Gregory is somebody who is living in the, the rapidly decaying remnants of imperial Rome, because, of course, by this time, the, the Western Empire is no more. Um, and there, what was happening in Rome was that these classical massive temples in, in, in Rome were being converted into churches. And many of them you can still see when you go to Rome, you know, you walk into a church and it turns out it's, it's actually a temple that's been converted into a, in, into a church. But that was happening in Rome. And therefore he kind of, he knows nothing about the cultural context of the Anglo-Saxons and applies it in this kind of, um, uh, yeah, very kind of culturally prescriptive way to the Anglo-Saxons. Now, of course, the Anglo-Saxons, we, we know very little about pre-Christian Anglo-Saxon religion. We don't even know for certain that they had temples. There's this one reference in Bede's ecclesiastical history to a temple. Uh, there's a priest called Coifi who converts to Christianity, a pagan priest. Uh, he converts to Christianity and then in order to show his loyalty to the new faith, he gets a spear and he throws the spear into a temple at a place called Yevering in Northumberland and uh, uh, then and then destroys the the idol inside the temple so there's one example of, of a temple but other than that there's not really any archaeology to support the idea that the anglo-saxons had temples um they might well have worshipped in, in groves and things like that or worshipped sacred trees and so yeah that that you have to be careful you have to ask yourself as always in history who's writing this you know what what is the context of this source and i think the other um you know, classic piece of evidence that's brought forward for um, the sighting of Christian churches on pagan sites is a place in Dorset called Knowlton. Um, and I, I was there in the summer, actually, uh, for the first time. I've never actually visited it in, in person. And Knowlton is a, is a wonderfully kind of visually charismatic site. It's this henge, a double ditch enclosure. And in the middle of this kind of almost perfect circle uh, of, of henge ditches, you've got this now abandoned 12th century church, and you've also got some, some ancient yews. And it doesn't really take all that much reflection on the chronology of this site to realize that actually, there probably isn't a pagan connection here because the, the henge is Neolithic. Uh, so we know that these kind of henge sites, they're used in the Neolithic, they're used into the Bronze Age, but then they're abandoned. <laughs> you know, they're abandoned in the Iron Age they're abandoned by the Romans, they're abandoned by the Anglo-Saxons. So by the time Christianity comes along, there's no reason anyone would have any kind of pagan association with this site or know that this site was in any way a pagan site. It, it seems most likely to me that what you've got here is a ready-made churchyard. Somebody comes along and says, oh, wow, lovely, nice, round 
circular enclosure, like a, a churchyard was, was favoured at the time, you know, in the Anglo-Saxon period. They liked circular churchyards. Let's use it as a churchyard and build a church, slap bang in the middle of it. So when, when you start to ask these questions, actually realise that there are, there are much more straightforward explanations. Now, having said that, there are examples of Christian churches that are built on pagan sites or even are reused pagan sites, but they are Roman. Uh, so one example would be the Church of St. Pancras in Canterbury. St. Pancras's church is, is attached or very close to St. Augustine's Abbey. You can still go and visit the ruins of it and you can see the Roman bricks that are built into it, even though that's a later iteration of the building. But the latest thinking on St. Pancras's church is, yes, it probably was some kind of Roman structure, like maybe a Roman mausoleum, maybe a Roman temple that was still standing when Augustine arrived and therefore it's turned into a church, which makes sense. You know, 597, considering the Romans had only left in 410 from Britain, you are going to get some Roman buildings still standing at that point. And we, we know there's, there's a, a wonderful example, a, a place called Stone near Faversham, where you've got a chapel in the middle of nowhere, which actually was a, a, a Romano-British temple that has been turned into a, into a church at, at some point in the seventh century, but later fell into ruin after the Reformation. Uh, so yeah, there are these sites, but they're Roman sites. They're not, um, you know, Neolithic sites or Bronze Age sites or anything like that. And so I think that kind of, uh, yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the problem with the, the landscape theory. I mean, on the use point, um, yes, it is certainly true. There are um, there are ewes that are still growing uh, in Britain which and in Ireland, which are old enough that they could be reaching back to the pagan period because ewes have this extraordinary uh, long-lived um, you know, uh, existence. You know, similar to hedgerows, you know, you get hedgerows in Britain and Ireland, which are which are Iron Age. You know, they were planted by people in the you know fifth century BC or something, uh, which seems insane, but you know, it is that is true. Uh, but I'm not aware of any specific evidence that ewes in churchyards have been dendrochronologically tested to, to actually establish that a statistically significant number of them are actually pre-Christian and therefore that could indicate the church is on a pre-Christian site. But on the other hand, I wouldn't rule it out. You know, I don't think it's certainly beyond the, it's not beyond the bounds of possibility that sites might have been reused. And you've got occasional place name evidence. Harrow, um, you know, Harrow on the Hill in London, uh, the place name Harrow does refer to a, a place of sacrifice. Uh, so yeah, there, there are a few you know, and the highest point, there is a church in Harrow. So it is possible that, you know, somewhere like that could have been on a, on a, on a pagan place of sacrifice. I think the more I prosaic, think there are also examples. I was just going to say the more prosaic explanation for yew trees, which aren't that ancient, is that they keep grazing animals out of graveyards with their poison leaves. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think, yeah, these kind of <laughs> practical explanations for, you know, a, a tree, which is, you know, provides quite dense, cover in a, in, a, in a churchyard to ensure that that area is kept apart and kept as a sacred precinct that yeah as you say that is that is the more prosaic and probably the more likely explanation and they are ancient but probably in most cases not pre-christian um mm. and then you, you asked me about the green man pretty comprehensively debunked i think any notion that the that the green man has any real existence and I think what's fascinating about the, the green man mythos is that you've got a confected uh, figure a, a sort of reification 
of something which was never a thing. <laughs> um, so, you know, medieval stonemasons had various motifs that, that they enjoyed putting in buildings, and, and some of those are more famous than others. So, you know, for example, medieval builders like sticking in, you know, images of, of people pulling their trousers down and doing a moony at the, whoever was watching. <laughs> and no one for a moment would suggest that the man pulling his trousers down is always the same man, <laughs> you know, that this is a specific character in some kind of lost mythology. That would be absurd to suggest that. And yet people have done that for, for this other motif, this decorative motif, which is known to architectural historians as the foliate head. And the foliate head is a, a, a humanoid head made of foliage. It varies hugely. And I think this is another reason uh, that, that, that we can say that it's not some kind of coherent mythos because it, it's vastly varied, but it generally is humanoid head made of foliage with kind of tendrils or leaves or branches coming out of the nose and mouth uh, and yeah sort of a, a, a sort of lost in the lost in the wood kind of figure um, and the suggestion was made by uh, this this uh, this uh, member of the folklore society lady raglan in a, an article in 1939 that in fact this was a, a lost mythology uh, that this was a figure Who's that, that belonged to some kind of pre-Christian belief system that had survived into Christianity and whose name we'd forgotten. And Lady Raglan's masterstroke was to combine her theories about the foliate head with various other bits of folklore and, and, um, and custom. And one of those was that there are lots of pubs, well, not lots, but you know, they're, they're not uncommon. You know, they're, they're, it's a, it's a, it's um it, it, it's a fairly common pub name that you'll encounter around England. Pubs called the Green Man. Now these days, you know, most pubs that have got the Green Man will have a foliate head on the, on the sign, but they are in fact much older than Lady Raglan's article and the modern Green Man mythos. Um, probably uh, the Green Man meant a man dressed in green, and we we've got a, a change in the way we use language here. Uh, so if, for example, you look at the old witch trials. Uh, the records of the witch trials will often talk about the witches meeting a black man. Now, of course, in our terminology, we, we would think of a black man as referring to someone, someone who belongs to, a, to, to an ethnic minority. But in the 17th century, a black man is a man wearing black clothing. And likewise, a green man is a man wearing green clothing. Now, who is this man wearing green clothing? One possibility is that it refers to a, a, a fairy. So it could be a reference to Robin Goodfellow, for example, you know, who's the household spirit of, of sort of old English folklore. Uh, he, 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 he would be expected to wear green because fairies often wear green. Um, so it's possible that it refers to fairies or it's possible, as Lady Raglan suggested, and she might have been right on this, that the Green Man pub name was linked to a figure called Jack in the Green, Jack in the Green is, is somebody who pops up in May Day festivities and is where a man is, is kind of dressed in foliage and walks around and everybody gives him money and, and so forth. Now, the, this is a kind of, you know, an aspect of the, these, these widespread kind of guising traditions that you get in English custom. You know, you've got one in the Fens, for example, where a man would dress up as a bear uh, covering himself in straw and pretend to be a dancing bear. 
you know you've got these these customs where people will will um you know color in their faces in 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 black or red and things like that and or dress up as women and and men will dress up as women you you get these kind of uh, strange customs of people altering their appearance um and so jack in the green could you know and the green man could be one and the same person but then what lady ragland says is in addition to that, it is the, the Jack in the Green and the Green Man of the pub sign is also the same person as the foliate head. Um, and that's where it becomes a rather uh, ludicrous suggestion, I think, by modern standards. But it is, it is very widely accepted and quite rapidly accepted. And it becomes very, very popular post-war, uh, this, this Green Man mythos. And the, it, taken to its extreme, it's the idea that there was a cult of the Green Man which continued alongside Christianity, and the story that's kind of traditionally told, and often you'll still find this in kind of in, in guidebooks to churches that have a green man in them. They'll say, "Oh yes," and, and the pagans they wanted their own uh, little green man as well, so they made sure that there was a green man somewhere hidden in a in an inconspicuous place in the church. Uh, mm. just because not everyone was completely christianized by that yes. point so you go you, you get this kind of you know margaret murray-esque kind of <laughs> idea of pagan friend of the show <laughs> yeah. yes i i will i will stop and have a, a pint anytime i do pass an actual green man pub i i think the only time recently i've come across them there's one on great portland street in in london that i've I will sometimes stop at if I'm passing through. Um, I, I suppose you'd have to say it's it's cultural apex then comes in the Wicker Man, which is, you know, uh, obviously a touchstone for all these ideas. And I, th I think gave yeah. some of them a new lease of life. And um, the, the, the pub where on the island in the Wicker Man is called the Green Man and has the foliate head on the pub sign, if I remember correctly. But yeah. having having kind of brought these brought these myths down, we'll, we'll build them up quickly and say, because <laughs> I, I want to ask you, um, like, why... If if there's not much good archaeological evidence for this stuff, why is it around? Why do we believe it? Why is it? It's still really prevalent. Like these ideas are. Yeah. Are, yeah, are, I, 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 yeah. What I would what I would want to add, you know, I, I've been denigrating Lady Raglan, but I would absolutely say, you know, if the Green Man wasn't real in 1939, he's certainly real now. Yes. <laughs> you know, because yeah. the way folklore works. There's a whole, there's been a whole creation of a new, a new type of, of folklore out of this yeah, stuff. Yeah, absolutely, and absolutely, and and he is a wonderful example of a a 20th century folkloric creation, or, or even a 20th century religious creation, because of course there are plenty of people who who would actually have a have a, a religious relationship with the Green Man, and he would be part of their of their religious practice in in modern pagan religions. So um, yeah, absolutely, I'm not I'm not in any way denigrating or being contemptuous of, of the green man as a, as a figure. But I think we have to be honest about the origins of this. And I think actually quite a lot of people have embraced that and, and they don't mind being confronted with that. I, I think, you know, the work of Ronald Hutton is, is absolutely key to this. And Ronald Hutton has got this wonderfully kind of warm and sympathetic and kind of gentle way of letting down people who uh yeah kind of might believe this rather more way out stuff but still somehow retaining the magic and the fascination of it and when you read his stuff it's kind of um you know he, he will destroy many of, of of your illusions but leave you with something that's almost better um you know a kind of a truth which is somehow more magical than the falsehood that you've just been disabused of um and yeah i think that you know having this kind of ownership 
of folkloric beings and actually saying, yeah, we made that. You know, we, we culturally constructed this being, the, the green man, in the same way that people in the 16th century culturally constructed the fairy queen who becomes this, you know, hugely important cultural figure and, you know, is written about by Shakespeare and all this. Um, yeah, that, that, is, that is an achievement of our culture and it's a, an achievement of 20th century Britain. Um, and uh, the, 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 the green man is, is kind of, has become real, if you like, in, in, in folklore. And I think that, the, yeah, the reason why this stuff still retains such an appeal, I mean, I talked about the way in which in low fantasy you still find this kind of stuff. I mean, one obvious reason is that anything that's written about by scholars like myself takes a good long while to filter down to people who don't read academic literature. Uh, and, you know, that's that's partly the fault of, of us for not being good enough communicators, although I try. Um, but also it's just the way that culture seems to work, that there's a kind of almost, you know, a 10, 20, 30 year kind of time lag between what the scholars are saying and what the, you know, what the non-specialists or what the what the kind of the the, the lay people who, who aren't engaged with academic literature or maybe are writing fiction, what they're saying. And you see this with the witch cult hypothesis. So with the witch cult, the academics have basically trashed it by the 1960s, you know, almost within Murray's lifetime. Most academics would, would say this is not, you know, this is not really true. But you still find it in kind of non-specialist literature into the 1980s. But by the 1990s, it's percolated into popular culture as well. No one would actually take the witch cult hypothesis seriously or no one would or very few people would write a work of fiction or low fantasy that actually invokes the witch cult by the 1990s. And I think, you know, when it when it comes to the, you know, the green man stuff, I think, again, it's starting to, yeah, kind of percolate down. But Ronald Hutton did most of this work in the 1990s. And so, you know, it's we're, we're only 30 years out from that. And therefore, I think, you know, it will take a while yet for people to decide that they're going to go down other avenues. And so these things, the, these kind of narrative structures remain popular and remain persistent. But I think the other reason is that it's just, it, it, it's narratively satisfying, the idea of pagan survivals. Um, it's narratively satisfying. It's for some people, it's ide ideologically driven. So uh, I, I think that's less so these days. But, you know, if you go back to the 1960s, there's, of course, this great kind of turning against Christian orthodoxy turning against a, a, a Christian morality that's perceived as repressive and therefore a lot of people turn to this imagined ideal of paganism as an alternative. I, now I think that's less important now because of course Christianity is in such a bad way in, in, in Europe that you know and America that a lot of people don't have much of a Christian background to, to rebel against and, and, and turn against and so I think that's changed the kind of the, the ideological atmosphere and maybe reduce some of the kind of the ideological charge to some of this. But I still think, yeah, the, the narrative satisfaction is there. It's more narratively satisfying, or perhaps it's easier to write a low fantasy novel set in the Middle Ages where there are kind of secret pagans worshipping in the woods than to kind of grapple with this extremely complex popular Christianity, which, yes, it's Christianity, but also it kind of makes up lots of weird stuff like 
St. Ginnifort, who's a saint, but he's also a dog. And it's sort of weird. You know, the, the thing I always say about medieval Christianity is that never, ever underestimate how weird popular Christianity is. <laughs> Um, you know, don't don't assume that just because something's weird, it must be pagan or it must be older. Uh, you know, people in every age and of every religion are well capable of inventing weird stuff. And I think, you know, um, I'm sure you, you would agree with me that people today are very good at, at coming up with or or formulating very, very weird ideas and believing weird things. So I think, mm -hmm. yeah, we have to be careful about, yeah, kind of automatically assuming, oh, it's weird. So it must be pagan. Well, the the moving statues weren't that long ago, so. Oh, why? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, while not 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 everybody would agree that's Christian, but it it, it fulfills some niche, fulfills some niche of Christianity here, I suppose, for some people. <laughs> um, I wanted to say that the I, I'm interested in, in the Victorian period in the early 20th century when this stuff really kind of takes root. This this like, this kind of folkloric version of paganism that we're talking about, and um, you know, it comes at a time when you know, Britain is becoming more industrial and people are living in, in cities more than, than in the countryside. And so the countryside becomes, you know, this this idealized place. And Ronald Hutton says in Triumph of the Moon that um, he says he wonders, you know, why as as the countryside is, is being idealized and, and it's being seen as this kind of pure place where, you know, life is is, is right and correct. And, and why do they choose a pagan kind of version of this mythology rather than a Christian one? And he, he and, and why did it come about at this time and he kind of says that it was a period in which academics and folklorists tended to be um you know in opposition to the to the church but i don't know if you have any thoughts about why these this version of, of paganism re-emerges at this particular time yeah i i think that's um that's broadly right i i i think that there's a sense in which that um that appeal to a kind of yeah a, a pagan rural culture is is more it's more appealing it's perhaps more inclusive at that time than yeah than sort of acknowledging that maybe it's maybe this is maybe this is popular christianity but i think there's there's also kind of long standing ideological factors at play and those are to some extent quite peculiarly english ideological factors and they go back to, as far as the reformation and and that's the kind of the the demonization of popular Christianity as Catholicism and the demonization of Catholicism as a form of paganism. Uh, and so if you look at Reformation era apologists like uh, John Bale, who was a, a former Carmelite friar who, who, who gave it all up and became a quite a rabid kind of Protestant preacher and, and, and pamphleteer. And this was in uh, Edward VI reign. He is, is sort of adamant that, you know, uh, Catholicism is, is basically paganism in disguise, that really it's just the same old uh, paganism has come back. It's all, you know, worship of the whore of Babylon and all this sort of, you know, classic kind of anti-Catholic stuff. And, and that's the first stage, if you like, of this polemic. And then the second stage of that polemic is once Catholicism itself has been eradicated, then you say, well, rush bearing or ringing the bells of the church when there's a thunderstorm or giving women um, girdles with magical names on to, uh, you know, to, to ease the pains of childbirth. These things are also Catholic. And if they're Catholic, that means they are pagan and therefore they must be stamped out. And so there's that sense that anything which is what we would now call folklore is also Catholic. 
And then at the end of the 17th century, you get the first hints of scholars actually becoming interested in this stuff, not just because they want to eradicate it, but because they want they find it genuinely interesting. And, and so you've got people like uh, John Aubrey and Elias Ashmole who are actually collecting evidence of, 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 of folk belief. Um, and, and this slightly more, almost like a proto-folklore collecting uh, that's taking place in the late 17th century. And of course that continues into the, into the 18th century. You know, very, very patronizing, but at the same time, it does preserve you know, some, some genuine uh, examples of, of, of folklore. But the underlying assumption there is always, you know, these are these are relics of the old religion. Now, of course, the old religion to John Aubrey or Elias Ashmole is Catholicism. Later on, to Margaret Murray, the old religion is <laughs> is witchcraft. Is is this sort of yeah this this witch cult? Um, but this same idea, you know, that the, the basic intellectual structure of Margaret Murray is a Reformation era structure. It's just that you know, whereas John Bale says. You know, it's all secret Catholicism, which is really paganism, and it's evil. Margaret Murray says, "Oh, it's all <laughs> secret witch cult paganism, and it's good." But the, you know, it's the, the idea of this kind of secret old religion surviving under the surface that goes way, way back, and it's peculiarly English because, of course, you know, you look at Ireland, a totally different set of circumstances in terms of the religious makeup of the country, in terms of the success and failure of the Reformation in terms of the eradication of Catholicism is basically a total failure. You know, so, so obviously a total, totally different dynamic in Ireland compared to, to, to England, where you know, Catholicism is basically eradicated, but you do get the persistence of these, of these customs. And I think looking at it in the cold light of day, we would, you know, m most scholars, including myself, would now say most of these customs weren't specifically Catholic. You know, there was nothing about them that you know was was particularly linked necessarily to specifically catholic beliefs although in some cases there was that things like like ghosts linked to purgatory um they were simply you know a popular beliefs that had been developed within the context of a catholic christian world and therefore they'd taken on that kind of flavor but they kind of have analogs in lots of cultures you know they're the sort of thing that you're going to do do in a in a in a very uncertain world, in an agrarian uh, subsistence society where life is very uncertain and you've, you've just got to kind of take comfort where you can. And, and so I don't, you know, the, this idea that, that the reformers had that, you know, people are doing this because they're still attached to Catholicism. No, people are doing this because you've, you, you, you've kind of got to cling to these beliefs in a, in a society which is, you know, very nasty, brutish and short like you know early modern english society um so yeah I, I think it it does have this peculiar kind of anti-catholic element to it but the other thing i would like to mention there you know we talk about the folklorists who are going out into the countryside and claiming to encounter relics of you know ancient folk religion and you know the morris dancers are performing the the sort of you know the the vestiges of a sacrificial rite or whatever um <laughs> but there's also some clergy at this time who start to take it in the other direction but with the same basic set of presuppositions so you get clergy who also believe that you know pagan rites are being practiced in the english countryside but they're, they're not interested in those pagan rites they think those pagan rites are evil and need to be stamped out so there's a guy called uh, gilbert shaw who uh, graduates from oxford just after the first world war and takes up this um curacy at, at Eensham, 
in, uh, in Oxfordshire. And he ends up um, uh, writing about this in very kind of cryptic terms. But he says, you know, oh, there were there were dark things being practiced and, and people were going out to a to a local barrow and performing abominable rites. And it's something like a um, a, a story by Eleanor Scott, you know, the, the author of <laughs> Randall's Round. Randall's the, Round, yeah. Um, the sort of the, the, the horrible thing at the barrow. And it's almost like this is real. <laughs> this is a real life example of someone behaving like one of these clergy in one of these stories. <laughs> and he then becomes the guy who revives the practice of exorcism in the Church of oh, England. Um, and I wrote a book about this, which is called A History of Anglican Exorcism, which is, uh, a lot of it is about him, because he was the guy who, who actually did this. Uh, and, and he seems to have been obsessed with this. And again, he goes to Lincolnshire, sets up a theological college in, in an obscure part of, uh, of Lincolnshire, a place called Burla Marsh. And there he, he becomes convinced that there is a, 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 an Anglo-Saxon barrow next to the church, a place called Cock Hill. I've, I've been there. And it, it is, I think, a, a prehistoric monument of some sort, though I'm not sure whether it's Anglo-Saxon. And he, he becomes convinced that not only is this um, sinister, but also that um, Bolshevik magicians have created a, a, a ley line. And this is just after um, the Ley Lines book has come out by Alfred Watkin. Uh, um, so this is 1920s. Yeah. That Bolshevik magicians have created a ley line, <laughs> and that ley line connects directly with Cock Hill. And this is the node by which the, the Bolshevik influence is entering England and causing the general strike of 1926 by turning people <laughs> communist. Um, and uh, so he, he carries out this exorcism uh, of, of Cock Hill, uh, which is one of the first exorcisms that's conducted in modern times in the Church of England. So yeah, the, I, I think that that aspect is very little understood and very little recognized, this sort of darker, uh, more fearful, paranoid aspect of, of of these beliefs and the paranoid um yeah. yeah tendencies that these that these interpretations unlock sounds like a precursor to i mean montague summers with his you know there is real dark evil out there uh, and i i will be a guardian of it as as a priest who knows about these things uh, yeah or, oh, or dennis weekly uh, with his warnings about trade unions being uh, satanic <laughs> 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 there's a tradition for this <laughs> Um, I will briefly say that um, while the, the form of this that we're talking about is, is as you say, deeply English, um, and I'm, I want to be brief here because it's a whole different planet, but, and someday when, when I have good sources, better sources than I have now, I might, I might come back to this and do it justice, but there is a version of this sort of pagan revival in Ireland at about the same time, and it's weird in its own way because, of course, it's mixed up with the cultural revival um, the Gaelic revival and, and nationalism, and of course you have the likes of of Yeats and uh, E. Russell, you know, trying to put together, you know, uh, some kind of mystical order that would be based on a a castle in, in an island in a lake, you know, and um and and yet insisting the whole time that they're still, you know, they're invoking these Celtic gods, but they're still kind of trying to convince themselves that they're still basically Christian. So it's, yeah. it's just its own, but its own kettle of fish, very different. Yeah, indeed, and uh, I mean the the Irish, uh, yeah, the Irish kind of element of this is 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 fascinating because yeah, it's it's kind of to some extent free from the that sort of baggage of uh, anti-Catholicism that you that you've got in in England, even though quite a few of those people you mentioned actually were were Protestants, but they were nevertheless totally open to uh, to Irish culture and and this sort of yeah this cultural revival. Um, but I think, yeah, one of the things I would say about Ireland, going back to the pagan survivals thing, 
you often get the, this talk of Irish gods and goddesses and Irish mythology and so forth. Uh, but but the, the point I make about Ireland is that it was Christianized at an extraordinarily early date and developed a vernacular literature at an extraordinarily early date. You know, one of the earliest vernacular literatures along with Welsh literature in, in Europe. You know, there are very few uh, countries that can rival it in that regard. And therefore, you've got people writing stuff about what might be the kind of the original mythology of, of pre-Christian Ireland at an early date. But we can never quite be sure because most of them were Christian monks and clergy and so forth who were writing things and copying things. Even like the, the Toynbo Kulunga, you, you've got this kind of um, little Trinitarian doxology at the end of this <laughs> utterly secular poem, uh, this utterly apparently pagan poem, you know, saying, you know, glory, glory to God, because, you know, it's, it's been copied by a scribe in a monastery somewhere. Yes. And I think, yeah, we're, we're, there's, there's a whole tradition of, of, of scholarship which goes on to, to this day trying to get to grips with this question of to what extent is this Irish literature, like the, the Fenian cycle, it, to what extent can this be portrayed as, a, as an accurate picture of pre-Christian Ireland, or is this just a kind of, basically a fantasy literature of early medieval Irish Christian scribes? Because one of the other features of being Christianized at an earlier date, the earlier the date at which a country is Christianized, and this is not an absolute rule, but this is kind of my rule of thumb, the earlier the date at which it's Christianized, the more at ease that culture will be with the presence of its pre-Christian heritage. Because if Christianity has been wildly successful, and Christianity was wildly successful in early Ireland, then you don't really need to worry that the pagans are going to come back. And if you don't need to worry that the pagans are going to come back, you can, you know, have a bit of fun with your kind of pre-Christian <laughs> mythology and your, your kind of elements of pre-Christian culture. And you can kind of delight in that. And you mm. see the same thing in, in Greece, you know, in, in Byzantine culture. In Byzantine culture, there's absolutely no chance of paganism coming back. And so they don't really care if you, you know, um, start painting or, uh, or or writing poems about, uh, you know, the gods of Olympus, because the gods of Olympus are so far, you know, beyond, you know, the cultural reality. They're, they're purely symbols. They're purely, you know, these, these, these beings without any kind of any kind of potency. Um, whereas, you know, other places like, you know, um, medieval Iceland, in medieval Iceland, the church is so concerned about the, you know, the resurgence of paganism, because it's always just beneath the surface in Iceland, that, for example, they, they, they forbid people from using the names of pagan gods for the days of the week. And so in Icelandic today, the days of the week are, are really boring, kind of like first day, second day, third day, <laughs> fourth day, because the, the original days, which would have been presumably quite similar to, to ours, of the, of, the, of the names of the week, of the days of the week based on pagan gods were just too explosive <laughs> to, to allow that to continue. Um, and so I think, yeah, you have to be careful with Ireland in the sense that, yes, there is the sense in which this pagan past appears to be close to the surface, but is it really, you know, something which is at one remove or maybe more than one remove from that pagan past, a kind of a Christian interpretation of that pagan past, which was itself a kind of a, a function of the richness of early medieval uh, Irish Christian culture. And, it, it, you know, it's a fascinating debate and it goes on, you know, to this day. Well, <clears throat> excuse me, 
I haven't allowed too much time for this, but we will pivot a little bit into fairy lore as well. Is there anything, is there any ways in which that fits into what we've been covering so far? Well, I think one of the questions that's, that's often asked about fairies is, are they pagan? Are fairies pagan? You know, yes. are they a relic of, of, of pagan belief? And I, I wrote this book, which came out earlier this year, called Twilight of the Godlings, which essentially set out to answer that question. Now, it's a question which has not been grappled with for a long time. In, in fact, it's really not since Catherine Briggs was writing in, in you know, she, she was last writing in the, in, in the 70s, was her sort of last period of activity. And yeah, I, it, it, it's not really been grappled with since then. And, and Catherine Briggs was broadly of the view that fairies could be interpreted as some kind of evolution or development of ancestral spirits of the dead. So she saw the fairies as the dead. Um, others, of course, had seen the fairies as, as, as gods. And of course, before that, you had the whole fairy euhemerism thing, you know, the, the, the so-called pygmy theory of fairies. But, but, you know, even by Catherine Briggs's time, you know, that had been fairly comprehensively discredited. The idea that fairies were, were, were sort of, you know, actual um, prehistoric peoples, you know, race memories of prehistoric peoples and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, the, 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 the view that fairies were in some sense these kind of degenerated deities has been a pretty, you know, standard view um, for, for, for the last kind of 50 years. And, and I wanted to kind of to really look at it deeply into the evidence for this and, and ask this question of whether fairies are pagan. And, you know, some people have done great work on this. Um, you know, you, Ronald Hutton and Ghana Moitra. Uh, you've, you've got, um, yeah, so the, uh, somebody who's, who's worked on, um, uh, uh, on, on Anglo-Saxon uh, elves, you know, for example, um, and uh, Alaric Hall. And yeah, there's, there's a, lot, a lot of work has been done on individual aspects of this and the work of Diane Perkis, of course, who's, who's written um, a really interesting book, uh, Trouble, uh, uh, Troublesome Things about um, the history of, of fairies, but more looking into the kind of the psycho, psychosocial significance of, of fairies. Um, and, and so I, th I thought, you know, let's go back to basics and, and ask where the, what the evidence is. And yeah, so the conclusion I came to, I mean, it's broadly similar to, to Hutton's conclusion in many ways, is that fairies are, in, in one sense, yes, they are pagan, in the sense that they reflect a pagan way of looking at the world. If you think about a lot of stories that involve fairies, the fairies behave in a very particular way. They have a very strong sense of right and wrong. Uh, they have a very strong sense of things which are forbidden, things which you shouldn't do, and, and a, a sense of a way that they should be treated. And that's very similar to the deities of, of pre-Christian paganism. You're supposed to treat them right. And if you don't treat them right, then there's a kind of a merciless justice that will seek you out and you're going to suffer. And the fairies are very much like that. You know, Irish and British folklore, absolutely full of these stories of people who come a cropper because they've basically offended the fairies. Um, and this, this, I think, is, is deeply culturally pagan in the sense that it reflects a totally fatalistic outlook on life, which seems to be untouched by Christian providentialism. And by providentialism, I mean the idea that at any moment an omnipotent Christian God might come in and say, you know, save the sinner or 
or you know redeem the the lost and and this idea of kind of there's a get out of jail free card kind of idea if you invoke the christian god and that's often absent from these fairy ways of thinking so to that extent i would agree i would say yeah there is something deeply deeply pagan about these beings and also they are not christian so they are not christian in the sense that they do not fit into an orthodox christian cosmology that story which is told again and again in ireland for example the fairies are those fallen angels who didn't fall quite all the way and they didn't end up in hell, but they fell to earth. Well, that's just a that's just a folk that's just a folklore. There's no basis for that in Christian belief. And yet it has become established within Irish folk Christianity. And so to that extent, yeah, they're kind of they're, they're they they have this fa fairies fit into a pagan way of thinking. They are not Christian. They don't live within a Christian cosmology. But at the same time, they are not pagan in the sense that they are not pagan survivals. So you mm. can't trace a kind of lineage of fairies that goes all the way back to pre-Christian times. The only thing that I would say is that there is a kind of niche, like, uh, again, going back to a metaphor of ecology, there's a kind of ecological niche which godlings occupy throughout time. And by a godling, I mean these kind of subordinate deities so so small small gods these um beings which aren't quite worthy of worship but they may be wor worthy of placation you know put out a saucer of milk for them on may day and this kind of thing that they're sort of they're not quite gods but they have a bit of magic to them and in the ancient world we've got nymphs we've got satyrs we've got fauns we've got these these kind of godling creatures but there's no clear link that I can establish, and I have spent a very long time trying to establish such a link, but there is no clear link that we can establish between them and the fairies of later belief. So there is a degree of mystery as to where they came from. But at the same time, I, I don't think we need to shy away from that. And, and we can, you know, as with the green man, perhaps we can just say, well, we made them, you know, we created the fairies. At some point in the early medieval period, there was a need to create them. And therefore we did. And they became real because they 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 became part of our culture and and the and the way that we live. Um, so yeah, I, 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 the answer to whether fairies are pagans is a kind of a yes and no answer. Um, going forward with fairies, I have my final question. I think, and this is about a <clears throat> a theory that I associate with the the UFO writer Jacques Vallée, and um, it's a little bit of a John Keel thing as well in in some way. Um, this is <clears throat> the idea that fairies and UFO entities, your your alien greys, for example, especially those that tend to abduct people, um, are are manifestations of the same thing, or at least the same idea. And so this 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 idea is is popular amongst believers because I, I think personally it allows them to. Um, basically, a lot of believers will have an interest in multiple kinds of fantastic phenomena. So they might be interested in fairies, they might be interested in in U UFO abductions, and this idea allows them to kind of put everything together into a what some call the paranormal unified field theory. Uh, skeptics like this idea because to them, all this stuff just comes from pop culture and suggestion anyway. So to them, they, they make, it makes a lot of sense that the same idea, the same anxieties are being reflected over the centuries. We just put different clothes on them. And so the fear of being taken away by, you know, mysterious outsider beings is the same, whether you're talking about medieval times or, or the, the 20th century. So, um, this idea is 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 very common. It's usually 
trotted out there as a given. And I happen to know you have another take on it, so I'm interested in, in hearing that. Yeah, I, I'm not wild about it, I have to say. You know, it, it, it's almost become a cliche uh, for folklorists to say, oh, and of course, what we might have considered to be fairy belief has essentially become you know, belief in extraterrestrials and UFOs and, you know, the, 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 the UFOs and extraterrestrials are just a, um, a modern cultural manifestation of what used to be fairy belief. And I, I don't like this uh, for a, num a number of reasons. One reason is that I, I don't think it's actually fair to fairy belief to say, oh, you know, it, it's something which is just in the past and has just morphed into or been replaced by UFO belief, because I think that buys into this kind of stereotype of fairy belief as something which is just inherently old fashioned, ridiculous, you know, uh, absolutely beyond the pale of, of, of ludicrousness, suitable only for small children and so forth. And that re that's, that's, um, that doesn't do justice to, to, to fairy belief. Fairy belief was something, you know, people had genuine fear of these beings. You know, this is not something which people consider ludicrous. I mean, when you look at something like the you know, the tragic Bridget Cleary case from the 1890s in, in Ireland, that, you know, fairy beliefs were still powerful enough for somebody to be motivated to kill uh, over the belief that his wife was a, was, a, was a fairy changeling. So I just don't think that they do justice to the depth and reality of people's belief in, in fairies. And I think that it's sort of, yeah, it, it's almost as though people are saying, oh, well, fairies are ridiculous now, so we've got to move on to the UFO. That's one reason. But the other reason is that I just don't think that extraterrestrials, UFOs, map onto fairies well enough for us to say this is this is the same phenomenon. And and there are certain similarities. So in terms of the on, on the on the positive balance uh, side of the balance sheet, abduction. So the idea that fairies uh, abduct people and people have lost. Uh, sorry, the extraterrestrials abduct people. <laughs> and that people experience lost time. Uh, yep, that happens in fairy stories as well. But that's pretty much all that there is, I would say. <laughs> it seems that extraterrestrials, in you know, again, um, this is anecdotal, but but on the basis of what I've read, it seems that they are as likely, or if not possibly more likely, to abduct adults than they are children. Whereas when it comes to fairies, fairies almost only abduct children unless somebody happens to you know wander into a fairy mound in which case <laughs> they will have a lost time experience but there doesn't seem to be any specific interest that, that that ufos extraterrestrials have in in children in most stories i mean yeah there are quite a few stories of childhood experiences but it's often adults uh, but, but but the other thing which i think is a is a is a major dissimilarity is where the extraterrestrials are from so they're from the sky fairies don't come from the sky. <laughs> Fairies come from the earth. And this is pretty fundamental in my view. Um, you know, if we're going to apply sort of um, fancy language to this, fairies are chronic beings. So they, they are beings that are linked to the earth, that are in some sense one with the earth, that are manifested from the earth. And this is deeply, deeply rooted in European culture. They, they live in hills. They live underground. They are tied to the trees. They're tied to the water. They are they are spirits of nature and they are spirits of the earth. And the idea that you can just take that, <laughs> you can just suddenly make them into these sky spirits, that to me just does not add up. 
there are um, one or two instances where it seems that you get these spirits of the air in folklore. And one example is the Magonians. And in fact, the, the Jacques Vallée book, yes. the title of that book, references the idea of Magonia. And that's um, uh, it's a reference in a, in a late antique account of, of the beliefs of peasants in, 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 in Gaul, that the peasants in Gaul have, have received a visit from these Magonians who kind of come down and steal their crops, I think it is. Um, that's pretty unusual. And in fact, it probably relates to a belief different from fairy belief, which is belief in daimons, so the Neoplatonic belief in these kind of spirits of the air, which occupy the middle space between the moon and the earth. And that is, they're not quite the same as, as fairies, clearly, because they eventually morph into the demons of, uh, of, of Christian belief. So, yeah, I, I'm not convinced by it. And, um, yeah, I, I, I think that the, yeah, I, I, I want to push back against the, the cliche a bit, because I think that it gives us a slightly distorted view of fairy belief. Now, if you're looking for another comparison, an alternative comparison between fairy belief um, and something which is more modern in, in, in contemporary belief, I would say that the much stronger analogy, in fact, Kian, you yourself have made this point earlier uh, <laughs> on this podcast, is that the, the, the much stronger correlation is between fairy belief and cryptozoology, and specifically with beliefs in, in almost human beings beings in cryptozoology like Bigfoot, like the Yeti, because I think that the key factor about fairies is that they are almost human. And again, you know, extraterrestrials, they're non, they're utterly ahuman, inhuman characteristics tend to be more emphasized, at least in more recent um, extraterrestrial encounters. Uh, so yeah, it's that sense of the fairies being somewhere between man and beast, and somewhere between the human and the non-human, which means that, yeah, these kind of encounters with the Yeti and Sasquatch seem to be much closer, especially when you bear in mind that fairies, they are of a, of a piece, if you like, with these earlier godlings that are, that are kind of um, half human, half animal, like the satyrs, the centaurs, the fauns, which, you know, again, they're, they're so closely tied into nature. And I think that the cryptozoological fascination with Sasquatch or Bigfoot or whatever um, is also linked to the fact that they are of the earth, that they are of nature, that they are almost guardians and spirits of nature. And that to me, you know, that's much more like the fairies. Hmm. That, yeah, that's that. Yeah. Kind of linking to um, some stuff we talked about on the episode with Justin Mullis about the, the fairy humorism there and the, the pre-human and proto-human human figures and how they show up in, in, in folklore and, and archaic forms of of anthropology um, I suppose I've yeah. always I've always found it it made sense to me that you know our anxieties and such manifest in the form of these of these encounters with with non-human beings and that the the manner in which these things appear does match with the era in which we are you know like by I've, I've always said like the for some reason the world was ready for flying saucers by 1947 yeah. after the second world war when we were entering a more technological sort of a mind mind view but um yeah, I did. The fact that the the fairies are linked to the earth as opposed to the sky does feel significant to me. I, I, I quite like that. And so, yeah, Bigfoot in some in some iterations is uh, very deliberately described as being almost like an earth spirit, uh, you know, guardian of the forest, representative of the earth, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting. Right. We might wrap up. Um, where can people find uh, what you're doing and your work and get a hold of uh, anything interesting that you've got out there? 
Yeah, so as I say, you can find me on Twitter or whatever it calls itself now uh, as <laughs> at Dr. Francis Young. Uh, and uh, you can have a look for my books. Uh, so my most recent book, as I mentioned, is called Twilight of the Godlings, uh, The Shadowy Origins of Britain's Supernatural Beings. And that's published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, yeah, other things that I've recently or fairly recently written, uh, a book called Magic in Merlin's Realm, which is a history of the interaction between politics and magic in British history. Um, and I've also written uh, a bit about um, the, the pagan religions of the Baltic, if you're interested in specifically paganism. And in terms of what's coming next, um, I'm working on a book with Robin C. Douglas, uh, which is called Paganism Persisting. And that's going to be a history of that legacy of paganism since antiquity. But You'll note that I've used that word persisting, not surviving. So, you know, <laughs> no, making no claims of pagan survival, but nevertheless making the claim that paganism, the idea of paganism, continues to be hugely significant and influential in, in, in European culture after antiquity. That's wonderful. Listen, this has been tremendous fun and, and such a, a litany of topics that really hit my sweet spot. So I'm, I'm super pleased that you were able to come on and talk about this. Well, it's been a delight. Thank you very much. Okay, so hopefully you enjoyed that. I'm about to wrap up here, but a small bit of housekeeping. And I have three things to say before I finish up. And now the first one, uh, yeah, Alien Grace. That got me thinking. Gave me a lot to think about, actually. Uh, I want to expand a little bit on some thoughts I had in the intervening couple of weeks since since we chatted uh, in the interview you just heard, and the idea of alien greys as being on you know non-human or distinctly non-human. I suppose you know in the history of both science fiction and you know ufology, the alien grey as we know it today is is a lot more human than a lot of the alternatives. They're not bug-eyed monsters. They're not. You know, insectoid aliens, they're not reptil reptoids or what what have you. You know, the only thing that's more human than them in, in, in the annals of ufology are the, the blonde Nordics, uh, which definitely have more of a, a religious bent to them, in my opinion. And so there's a long history of explaining the, the background of alien greys and how they got to look the way we expect them to look today. And it's full of ideas and theories like that they perhaps represent. Um, well, a common one is that they represent the, the idea of a fetus or a proto-human or even a future human, you know, as H.G. Wells wrote about famously in The Man of the Year Million. And so, you know, they are broadly speaking either a human or a type of human, though maybe, a, you know, a past human, a future human uh, or, uh, you know, a, a proto-human of some sort. So that's that's one take on it. And so for more on this, check out uh, Martin Kotmar's extensive uh, series on Magonia called Varicose Brains. Highly recommended. Sorry, a, a tortoiseshell butterfly has just woken up from some corner of the room and is banging its wings frantically against the window of the cabin. So hopefully you can hear that. Anyway, uh, what else do I want to talk about? I want to say thanks to uh, Matthew at the podcast Commendable Commotion for having me on recently. Uh, we, had a, we had a chat about the podcast, uh, my show, the history of the paranormal, my thoughts on the paranormal, how they've changed 
over the years uh, so i'll put a link up as soon as that episode is out uh, matthew has done some interesting stuff himself has taken some uh, prayer trips to places associated with paranormal happenings and it sounds like there might be some interesting work coming out of that soon so i'll be putting up links to that as well as soon as it all comes through but that's all i can say for now but yeah the podcast is called commendable commotion we had a really really good chat And I want to say thanks to Ben March, who reached out over on Instagram and said, Hi, I just heard your excellent conversation with Justin Hopper. He mentioned Eric Gill, uh, an extremely controversial character. That's true. He was known for some uh, bad things in his personal life, but also known for uh, his work with small printing presses and wood engravings. Uh, Ben continues, I presume you know about Robert Gibbings, your fellow Corkonian, a friend of Gill's, and incidentally, my grandfather's friend also Uh, in the unlikely event that you don't already know about Gibbings I will happily send you a couple of his books so that was very kind Ben and uh, yeah Robert Gibbings books I don't have any and I'd be happy to get one or so in in the post and and that's it for now really as I said yeah so yeah and buy me a coffee.com forward slash white atlantic send me some brown juice and uh, uh, you can always say hi over at instagram where i'm white underscore atlantic underscore weird or back on mastodon where i am slightly more i won't say controversial but slightly more forthcoming with opinions about things it's not just uh pretty pictures of fun places i've been Uh, anyway over there i am at white atlantic weird at mastodon dot social so folks as always uh, stay safe and thank you for listening We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.